You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter. And now, over to your hosts. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. My name's Rusty, and in this episode, I have sitting across from me, Todd Hodner from Accuracy First. G'day, Todd. How you going? Ah, doing great. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. Oh, thanks for letting me come in. No problem, mate. And uh, you're uh, over here in Australia and yep. uh, spending some time here. Yep, been here for a little bit. And awesome. You like the place? Oh, I love it. It's great having you here. Yep, it's wonderful. Mate, um, and for those who don't know, um, you've been involved with a lot of different products and development. You able to give us a bit of a rundown of what you've done? Uh, yeah, you, you know, we've been in the long range community for a long time and trying to develop products to make it easier one for the shooters, uh, and not, not only to make it easier and faster, uh, and better, more accurate is what we're after. So, uh, we've de- developed, uh, bubble levels that have lines that are over two and a half degrees. So you don't have to be level. You just have to know how on the level you are to still make the shot. So, yep. Most of the products that we designed are for the military purpose, but it, it's it's basically every long-range shooter can benefit from them. Mm. Uh, the levels was one. It was uh, meant to be a uh, nighttime bubble level, so we have a tritium vial in the back of it. Yeah. Uh, it in the States, the NRC did not like, or Nuclear <laughs> Regulatory Commission did not like uh, <laughs> the fact that the cowboy would have 17,000 tritium vials in my house. <laughs> So he, he, they decided not to let me do that. Uh, uh, but some places can still get tritium vials. It depends yep. on where you are in the world. And you can place it where you can see it at night and see if you're level or not. Mm. Uh, but the bubbles, you know, that was one thing that I looked at when we were trying to develop a bubble level in the United States for the military purpose. Uh, it was because our boys shoot at nighttime. And yep. it was something that we needed to be able to see the bubble at night. And we didn't want to have any white light, obviously, uh, out on the battlefield. So we ended up... Uh, coming up with the idea of running a tritium bubble level uh, so you you can actually take the rubber stopper out of the back and just place a little vial in the back of it and close it up and everything works fine that way so but in in looking at them uh, initially i thought this was going to be a pretty easy deal Uh, unfortunately bubble levels are not equal so when you look at levels we tested we tested tons of bubble levels i thought hey just run out and buy a vial Pick mm-hmm. it up. Any, you know, any of them's close enough. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't that way. So we had to actually get a custom vial made yeah, uh, right. to, to give us what we wanted. When, when you look at bubble levels, the actual air pocket in most bubble levels, uh, that bubble will expand and grow with density altitude. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of becomes a problem. And, and really what we're looking for is 99% of the time is just if you're level. Uh, you don't have to know how unlevel you are. You just need to get your gun back to level. In, yeah. in the military, they don't have that luxury of having time uh, sometimes when they have to take the shot. So basically what they're going to want to do is know how unlevel they are and then still be able to take the shot. And we're not talking about you know using a canting bipod to where you can just swivel it over a little bit, but we're talking about maybe throwing a gun up on a rock and, and hitting the wall on that uh, bipod and having to reach up and you know pop out a Harris bipod and give you a couple extra clicks you know, and get, get your height up to where you can level the gun. That's what we don't have time for. Mm. So we we ended up creating this uh, 
bubble level system to where there was a line every two and a half degrees. Every two and a half degrees is a half tenth mil every hundred. Mm-hmm. So at five degrees, you're a tenth mil off every hundred. So when you're talking 800 meters uh, with five degree Kent, you're 0.8 mils off target. So even a half of a tenth, which, which is the thickness of a cross here on a lot of reticles, yep. uh, a half a tenth mil at 800 meters is missing a normal 20 inch or uh, what is that? 40 centimeters going inches. Yeah. 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 20 inch target. So, uh, it's something that, you know, we have to, it's probably one of the biggest reasons that we miss in the Mm. long range world, you know, and I, and I was totally oblivious. I was ignorant going back and and being ignorant is just when you're not exposed to knowledge. I use that word in my class all the time. Uh, the long range community, uh, you know, has been ignorant to, a lot of things, and, and I was right there in the middle of them. You know, I'm 52 years old, and I've been doing this since I was six. And and I was ignorant in a lot of different ways. And some of those ways, I used to think, uh, you know, everybody's been doing this a long time. We don't need bubble levels. We don't, we don't need that. We're good. I can level my own radical, that kind of deal. And, and that's something that, honestly, uh, I was wrong. I think anybody that has a scope should have a bubble level. I don't care if you buy mine. Go out and buy anybody's, but get a level on your scope. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What I've seen over the past 12, 13 years of training uh, military in the United States and all around the world, uh, probably the biggest problem or the biggest reason we miss targets is because the shooter is not level. Now, Brian Litz is a good buddy of mine, and he does Palma shooting. He's won multinational championships and titles. And... He tells people because he teaches some schools, and probably nowadays very rarely, but he he teaches some schools in that uh, type of shooting. Mm -hmm. And he tells the guys, he says, uh, I can make you twice win car in the first five seconds of my (laughs) class. And, of course, everybody signs up, and they're very, you know, happy to get there, and they're very excited (laughs) about the first five seconds of class. And once they get there, you know, they're they're sitting in the room on pins and needles waiting for this first, first five seconds. And he says, buy bubble level. It'll make you a better wind caller. It'll double your capability. Because Brian says the human eye cannot see two and a half degrees outside. Now, if we get in an environment where we're inside and, and we can sit down and we can look through a, a reticle at a wall, a uh, baseboard, you know, something in the mm-hmm. house, we can see when we're slightly candy. But out where we're, you know, in an environment where there's terrain features and that kind of thing, you know, it's it's one of the problems that, that I've I've been exposed to in the military uh, most of the time on military bases, we have flat berms. We have, uh, you know, engineers that come out there and make us flat berms. And the next berm is a flat berm and then, you know, that's leveled off. And then mm. the trees at the end of it grow straight up to the heaven. So, you know, everything's pretty easy to find level. And if you're off level, it's probably only a degree and a half, you know, mm. probably at most. So in, in the ranges that we're shooting at these places, probably only out to a thousand. So it's, it's not super critical, but, when you know when you get out to my place uh out in west texas uh or in the panhandle of texas you know when you're up shooting on that property uh that's my buddies uh what we end up finding we're in the cap rocks so you know there's there's a lot of hills that go up and flatten off and we get up on top of these hills and shoot across terrain that is anything but level Hmm. and so most of the guys will line up and they think they're level and i can't tell you how many times this has happened and Guys will lay there, and I'll go, hey, you're candid. And he'll go, no, I'm not. I'm not uh, you're candid. And he goes, all right, uh, my reticle is crooked in my scope. And I'll go, uh, probably not. So get it set up <laughs> and then get back off of it, and I want you to look at it. So he sets up what he perceives as a level, and then he gets off of it, and he sees his gun's candid. And so then we take the gun, 
and put it on flat terrain. And I said, all right, just level it the 100-meter range and make your gun level, put it on the sand sock, get off of it, and look at it, and it's perfectly level. Mm. And it's perception. So it's real hard for the human eye to see it. Yep. So I'm a huge fan of bubble levels because most of the time, uh, even though we think we're doing our job, mm. we may not be doing it well enough to be, still be on target especially in train features that are, uh, and they don't have to be rolling. They don't have to be dramatic. Uh, it, it can be just uh, the perception of what we think is level is not perfectly level. Like we said, it's only two and a half degrees. It's hard for the human eye to see, but that's just one product. So uh, something that's really catching on strong now, another uh, product that I designed was the trimmer reticles, the time of flight wind dots that, mm-hmm. that we patented uh, that, that has really kicked off with a lot of militaries all over the world. Uh, and, and it's, it's a really, the reason I did it was, uh, to get us away from math. So, so it was simplistic. So make it easy. And so the, the whole idea behind the trimmer reticles was I was sitting up one night looking at it and looking at the problems that I deal with guys in classroom all the time and the speed of which they need to do their job to keep themselves alive and their buddies alive and do their, you know, to, to do the, do that job and increase hit probability. Uh, and, and even as a hunter myself, uh, a lot of times we have a really short exposure, you know, mm-hmm. to certain opportunities for targets. And as a competitor, it was the same way. And if we could cut the math out, it would make it a lot easier. So basically I developed time of flight wind dots, uh, which are basically, they're not ballistic, but they're purely ballistic. Purely ballistic means they are perfectly matched to your weapon system. Yep. And so, you know, we can go into that a little bit later if you want or go into it now. But go into it now. Yeah. Right, so, so basically with the trimmer reticle, the first thing you do is you go out and trim it like you would any other reticle and get your actual real muzzle velocity uh, with, with the BC, depending on whether you're running custom drive curves, G1, G7. And all those are fine. They don't, they don't really matter which one you use in the supersonic. They're nearly identical. Uh, they really only diverge when once you get into transonic. Uh, but once you've trued your weapon system, now you're going to come back and you're going to shoot, uh, you know, at a target, maybe 500 meters. So you look at your four mil line, this is the same on every weapon system. So you go to the four mil line in your ballistic engine and you change your wind from full value after you turn off spin drift. And the reason we turn off spin drift is we want to make sure that we're not playing with the spin drift from left winds to right winds. So you're not building two custom formulas. So you're really working off, you're removing spin drift out of the, out of the problem. And we're looking at pure wind deflection based off wind. So I plug in a 3 o'clock wind, and I change my wind until we get 0.95 mils. The reason we're working for 0.95 mils is that's the second wind dot. Mm-hmm. So once we define the value of the second wind dot on the 4 mil line, we just take that number and cut it in half. So with the 308 that we use in the military lot, uh, that, that is a 8-mile-hour wind deflection at the elevation of a 4 mil hold. And so this is a living, breathing reticle. As you shoot out in higher density altitudes, you use less mils. Well, as you use less mils, wind dots are closer together. So it's making a density altitude correction on your wind formula for you, even though you're still calling it four miles an hour. <laughs> so it's uh, that, you know, Brian Litz, he, he, he loves the reticle because basically it's the only time of flight, yep. true time of flight uh, reticle that's out there. Ballistic reticles are not perfect time of flight because you change one thing. Muzzle velocity, BC, DEA, all ballistic reticles go downhill real mm-hmm. fast. Uh, they work wonderful out to, to the ranges that work, which is about 500 meters. Yep. Past that, they start going downhill. So it's, it's, it's something that 
I love a ballistic reticle where it works. It works about 500 meters and it quits working. So nothing gets sh- shooting out to 500 meters. That's mm. awesome. In, in most hunting environments, bl- a ballistic reticle is all you'd need. It, it's a wonderful tool. Mm. Uh, but the time of flight wind dots has really kind of changed. I think, I think what we're going to see from, from what's been projected uh, with the groups that I train all over the world uh, in the U.S. military, uh, you know, the, the PSR has been uh, – or our PSR has been or has adopted the Trimmer 3, the EcoSOS, uh, the Trimmer 3. It'll replace the Gen 2. Everybody's moving away from a Gen 2 mil dot. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's really – it's that was nearly replaced completely by my H58 and H59s that I designed mm-hmm. uh, for Horace. So the H59 really took off, and then the Trimmer took off. And then for the Trimmer 3, I just com- – com- I combined the tr- or Trimmer 2 with the H59, which was re- – it's really just H59 and the, with the addition of wind dots. Mm-hmm. And so now guys don't have to sit there and go, okay, target's 500 meters, so it's 0.5. What's my wind? 16, so it's times 4, so it's 2 mil hold. And then we move to the next target and say 800. Well, that's a – with the density altitude adjustment, that would be 0.9 times 4, 3.6. So that's my hold. And so we don't have to do it anymore. We, you know, basically now all we do is look at the wind and go, hey, it's 20 mile hour, hold the fifth wind dot shoot. So it's really simplistic. But the the beauty of it is it's ballistic to your system. Pick a new bullet, it's ballistic to that bullet too. So it, it's, it can perfectly modify itself to, to fit and adapt any ballistic. Because what I patented was uh, based on... Per mil of drop, a certain amount of uh, time of flight wind deflection. Yep. And that's the beauty of it. So it works with everything. So it's all based on time of flight and that's absolutely. what works with anything. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant. And there's other, other. I, I know I heard you talking about working on the M10. Yeah, a- actually uh, with the M10 what happened was uh, Frank Obretta called me up and asked me to shoot the TRG-42 and uh Asked him if he would change the twist rate because at the current time it was a twelve twist, and I've been I've been in fast twist rates for well over a decade now, and I wasn't interested in shooting a slow twist gun no. and not even testing and not wasting my time. And so it took two years uh, before they finally came around and Franco called me up and said, "Hey Todd, would you please shoot this rifle if I put a ten twist in it?" I said, "Yep, I'll shoot it. So <laughs> send it." So he sent me the gun. I said, "Now, uh, here's the deal. In the past couple of years, while we've been dragging our feet." I've moved on. Now I'm at a nine twist. And he said, please just shoot the gun. So I shot the gun. It shot really well. It did exactly what I thought it would do. And then I asked him, I said, hey, if you want to stay with this uh, program, uh, I'm moving to a nine twist. Uh, Give me the ability to replace the barrel and give me a nine twist. Well, that barrel ended up, I, I went with the button barrel. They spun up the machine. They didn't have a nine twist in three thirty eight. I even had companies wouldn't even sell me barrels. It was just like, nope, it's not going to work. You can't go that fast. It won't shoot. Everybody's going to blame my barrels. I said, then don't mark it. I won't tell anybody whose barrel it is. Hmm. And so I finally talked some people into giving me a barrel. Well, they tried to spin it up in a button barrel to make it a nine twist. It ended up being a nine three five. The gun shot so well that companies now actually it became the standard because of that gun because the military said, hey. Uh, it'd be nice for the all the companies to have the same information. So when they come for procurement uh, or come for the procurement process, everybody's on the same uh, playing field and, and the operator gets the best chance to have the best weapon system. I said, yeah, got it. So I went out and talked to all the vendors. And I said, hey, uh, it'd be good if, you know, you looked at 935. Mm-hmm. I said, personally, I'd be at nine right now, maybe eight and a half, but 935 is kind of where we're at. And so I let them... Let everybody know 
exactly how that gun shot. And it shot so well that that has now become the industry standard for 338 is 935. <laughs> and it's only because that little 20 inch, you know, uh, 935 twist that I've got in my locker at home yep. and i would never redo it i i'd be at eight and a half and that's where i am right now but the guns <laughs> i mean it's got 4500 rounds on it wow and it's still yeah. a half minute gun we shot it last or uh, before i came over here so it's last month yeah yep and it still goes oh it's wonderful yeah. wonderful and and um can you tell us about your breaking procedure or, or what you do yeah with that? you know uh, that's interesting with the gun that we're talking about all right so i was at a place of work in the military uh doing training and I had the gun rebarreled and shipped to me, and a buddy of mine picked it up. I met him that night, drug it out on this facility that I was doing training on. Well, obviously, I don't have time to do a break-in process. Mm-hmm. So my normal break-in process up to that point was shoot one shot fully clean. So I'd take all the carbon out, then I'd take all the copper out, and then I'd get it real nice and clean, and I'd take one more shot. I'd do that five times. Mm-hmm. And then I'd do two shot and then clean out do that five times then i'd do three shot and then i'd clean and i did that you know basically all you're trying to do is lay all the microscopic burrs down metal on metal mm-hmm. and without trapping any copper underneath them and so you had to really work to get all the copper out from underneath the microscopic burrs and you lay metal a little bit down or a little bit closer metal to metal and you continue that process till hopefully you've got everything done well if you buy a good barrel you don't need to do that all right. So I didn't understand at the time. Basically, I had no time to, to do this uh, during this process, but I wanted to shoot the gun. It was the first 9.35 twist, 338 out there. I was super, super excited to try it. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to shoot five rounds to it, see what it groups like. Well, it shot sub half, and I was like, all right, I've already <laughs> blown it. I've already killed my break-in process. I'm, uh, I'm going to shoot another five-round group. Well, after four groups, I was like, <laughs> all right. You know, I'm I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna go I'm through the breaking. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna go in, and go ahead and clean it. And then I had about 15 guys standing behind me that said, "Hey, Todd, can we shoot your gun?" I was like, "No." <laughs> and so, but I couldn't tell them no. So they went ahead and shot. So we shot about 200 rounds that day uh, before I got to clean it. And yeah. basically, the gun has never had a breaking process. It's 4,500 rounds on a 338 Lapua. <laughs> it's still shooting half minute groups. It's phenomenal. So after that one, my next gun that I got was a 7.83 or 7.8 twist 308. And super fast twist at the time. We don't consider it that fast now. But super fast twist for the time. And basically, I decided to do the same thing. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to break this gun in. I'm going to see how this one works. And that gun ended up being the most accurate gun I've ever shot. Wow. Uh, We were doing testing for the wind sense for the government. And we were doing testing at a thousand meters, and this is probably I don't know seven eight hundred rounds into this gun's life, and we shot the first sixteen rounds in a four inch group at a thousand, and that's you know sitting there yeah. just shooting groups after groups. So it was uh, the gun was phenomenal. It, it, and again, seven point eight twist, no break in. So I, since that day, I've never broken another gun. Now I'm not going to tell you if you go out and you buy a gun off the shelf, uh, and it's got a racked gray barrel, meaning Basically, it's not a something like a, a – y'all have Matco over here, yeah. correct? So Matco yeah. or something like a Bartline or a Krieger or a Broughton or a Lilja, something like that, or a Hart. Really good. You know, even LaRue has some fantastic barrels nowadays. So it's uh, it, it's one of those deals that I would never break in one of those barrels. And I, and I, know, all the, I know all the companies, you know, perks of my job. Now I know all the, the, the presidents of those companies. And so I call yeah. them up and I'll say, hey – uh, what's your breaking procedure? You know, and they'll go, Todd, just shoot the thing. 
<laughs> and, and I say, all right, really? And he says, yeah, believe me. You know, we've already done the hand lapping. It's 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 a good system. Just shoot it. But it's something that when you, you know, if you're not a known entity to these guys, if, if a guy off the street calls in and says, hey, what's your break-in process? Immediately, you've already qualified yourself. So you wanted a break-in process. Yeah. So they're going to yeah. give you one. And it's going to be a long, arduous process that you're going to have pay value in that gun for it to shoot well. Mm-hmm. So th- you're going to work and work and work, and you want it to shoot well. And so that's what they want from you. It so if, yeah, if you, yeah, if you, if you qualify yourself as somebody that wants to do that, they're going to give you one. Hmm. Uh, I've never broke in another gun, and I won't break in another gun. No. So, you know, I may run some JB compound through a gun that may start to go downhill. Yep. And if it's if I'm losing, but you know what? To be honest, I get more barrel life. Uh, the 7.8 twist lasted 14,500 rounds. Wow. Uh, and it's a 308. Yeah. Uh, I've not shot out my 338 yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, we've got several of them, but it's the fast twist. Uh, and, and to be honest, we don't, I've never, t- I never take copper out ever. No. So I, I remove carbon within Pro 7. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, I do that every 200 rounds. I do. I never touch my copper because I got to rebuild that bearing surface when, yeah. if I remove copper. So it's it, it's a system that you know. I grew up uh, a poor dirt farmer out in West Texas, and <laughs> you had one gun and you treated it like gold because you may never get another one. So I didn't grow up this way. I grew up cleaning everything, taking copper out of everything, and now. You know, if I had a gun that was my baby, like my 300 Norma, yep. and I mean, that's that's a little gun that I treat like a jewel, but I, I still don't clean it. <laughs> so uh, basically, I'll take the co- carbon out of it, and only with, with Impro 7, I never take the copper out of it. Uh, don't know. It, it's probably, I can't remember exactly how many rounds it has. It, it probably has close to 1,500 rounds. Uh, it's running a 230 burger. Yep. That's the only bullet I've ever shot. Nice high BC, 0.743 on the G1 scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, started out about 30-30 muzzle velocity and is now around 3,000. So maybe I dropped off a little in muzzle velocity and I've been shooting different lots of ammo. So that may be the change here. Sure. But uh we're getting great barrel life, and we're getting yeah. great accuracy, and we're not seeing any need to actually clean the life out of our barrels. And I've got a lot of friends in in the competition world that are actually, t- you know, trending to believe the same thing that we, yeah, you know, right. in the past we just cleaned the life of out of our guns. Yeah, that was always the way. Yep, yep, always. But not so much now. No, not so much now. The um, that three hundred Norma mag. I'm thinking about building one of them next. Oh, they're phenomenal. It's my favorite. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, we've looked at everything, and people ask me all the time. They said, uh, "What do you think about you know four eight shot attack or three seventy five shot attack?" And I've shot them. I've got a uh, an Ayler eighty eight. I think there's seven in the world, and I've got one at the house. Doctor Ayler's a friend of mine and brought it up to the house, and we've shot the three seventy five through it, and I wasn't that impressed. You know, no. most of them are overrated for BCs, and the accuracy's not as good. Uh, it, it, the nice thing is I've got a 26-inch bull barrel. It's a straight contour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it weighs a ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've had little bitty girls. You know, my best friend's daughter is laid down shot deer. First round hits at 700 meters. And they smile, look at the camera. They didn't even feel the gun go off. There's yeah, no recoil. Nice. It's a wonderful little gun. So it, it's not like a 375 or 4A or, mm-hmm. you know, any of the big calibers. Uh, if there was something that could allow me to shoot further, 
as accurately, yep. I'd shoot it. So I, I've got a buddy that owns the other half of the ranch I own, my, my best friend's brother, and he wanted to kill a deer at long range this year. He, he's a good shooter, but he's only sh- you know shot deer 500 meters and in. And so uh, he actually owns a patent for deer cloning, so we do a lot of cull shooting yeah. on his property and this kind mm-hmm. of deal. So me and him went out, and we found this deer, nice deer. Uh, he ended up shooting it 700 meters first round, yep. got it all in video. And the next day I said, all right, Let's do some long-range hunting. I said, you know, I'll call Wayne for you. I'll run the Kestrel. Uh, let's set up and, you know, get pick out one of these cold deer, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll shoot it. Well, he hit it with the first round at 1,263 meters. Well, the next day we go out and we get another first round hit at 1,503 meters. <laughs> so he's had three long-range hunting trips, and he's killed at 712, 1,263 and 1,503 the gun's that forgiving and that nice. I mean, the guy's yeah. obviously a good yeah, shooter. Good You're shot. still going to miss. But uh, the the gun is a phenomenal gun. And that mm. high BC, you just can't give up BC. So in, in the long-range world, I've got probably probably seven 338s, and I quit shooting them yeah. uh, because that 300 norm outperforms them that bad. Just does it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nice. yeah, but really only with that 230. If it wasn't for the 230, I wouldn't even be Could that interested. Uh, the 215's good, but it's like a 6.9-something BC. And it's that seven four. Now I am building. We'll see how it works out. I'm building a seven mil three hundred Norma, so I'm going to neck well, down yeah. three hundred Normas to the seven mil, so I can shoot the one ninety five. Yeah, that new and, one. Yeah, yeah, that well, new one. So it has nice. a seven five five BC running thirty four hundred. Is what we think it'll run. So <laughs> it'll be subsonic at twenty five hundred meters. Wow. Uh, and you know, it's. We'll see. It, it, I would love to make some hunting rifles off that platform mm-hmm. uh, so you own everything out to about 1,200 meters. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it would be a really nice, and it'd be a nice long-range gun yep. as well. But it's, it's you know, looking at 300 Norma, like I said, if there was something else better out there, I'd be interested. You'd be there. Yeah. I just hadn't found it. I think I might have to uh, might have to oh, you'll celebrate love it. that one. Absolutely, yeah. you'll love it. Speaking of cartridges, now we have an, an ongoing uh, discussion Um about the 308 versus the 260. and uh, I, Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge to, fan. Yeah. Keen, of which one? Yeah, 260. Yep. Yeah, the 308's an inherently stable round. It's a good round. It's a good accurate round. It, you know, I, I have guys come out to me all the time for training in the military, and they've got 338's and they got 300's. And I tell them, I say, you know, bring your 308. It's a great training tool because what happens is, you know, when you miss for with a 308, you're going to learn how to call wins. Uh, that's what we're looking for. So yep. if you bring your 338, your 300 win mag, you're going to be able to cheat wins a little bit through BCs. Yep. So it, it's I, I'd much rather train with 308 mm-hmm. and then go out and pick up my 300 Norma. I'm not going to burn the barrel out of it. I'm, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to true it. I'm going to check my zero. I'm going to true it, and then we're going to go out and shoot something. So my son came in uh, from college, I think it was last year, and when he came in, I said, hey, run, go zero, the uh, 300, check it for you, make sure everything's good. And then we started truing at 2,000 meters. Yep. And so we trued the gun up at 2,000 meters, and then we went deer hunting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he put three three bullets on a rock that was probably uh, about 40 centimeters big at 2,000 yep. meters. So he, he's an exceptional shot. But, you know, when you, when you look at a gun that has that capability, you, you can do that. It, it, they're a phenomenal gun, phenomenal caliber. But when you get into 308s, you have to be really good at win. And mm. so it's a great training tool. It's wonderful. Oops. Now, on the flip side, uh, about four years ago now, coming up in May, so it's nearly four years ago. Yeah, I was thinking it was only three times getting away. But 
I consult for a group that is the R&D for DOD in the United States, mm-hmm. and they asked me to run a couple of projects, and one of them was replace 308 and 556. I told them, no sweat, done. And and the boss looked at me and he said, uh, really, you're going to do that in 10 seconds? I said, it's already done. It's a 260 <laughs> Remington. I said, here's here's the reasons why. The 260 Remington has a very high BC. It's a 65308. So you look at other uh, cartridges that are comparable, 6.5 Creed, 6.5 by 47s, uh, there's 6.5 USAs. There's six, I mean, there, there's a lot of the bullets are, are capable rounds. 6 millimeter stuff is awesome, too. Yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. But when you really look at what a 260 does for you, the, the problem with the 260 was that Remington made the ammo. And the ammo wasn't that kind of high quality. So a lot of people moved in that direction way back. Uh, when it came out, and this is an old cartridge. It's been around forever. Mm. Uh, but nobody shot it. Now, Hornady came out and said, hey, you know, we're going to change the angle on the neck, and we're going to create the 6.5 Creed. Uh, for whatever properties they claim it was gaining you, basically, it's the same same case. Or not same. It, it's basically the same volume, so you're getting the same velocities. You're running the same bullets. Uh, ballistically, they're nearly identical. What we get out of a 260 is the shape of the shoulder uh isn't as sharp so it feeds better and it's more reliable in the semi-autos for, so for the military it's not even close mm. 260 is the only way to go yep. uh and and i i really i see a movement in that direction in the military i see interest uh, we call them girl guns when i was com- competing uh they had no recall you could mm. spot yourself and as far as you see you're on trace half yeah. the time so they're Absolutely. a phenomenal round super flat great bc's uh, great performing bullets for wind, less wind deflection. Uh, the LaRue, I went out and shot for him at SHOT Show a couple of years ago, and he, he said, hey, Todd, you know, I got that 260 you asked me to build. And I said, great, great, I want to <laughs> shoot it first. So I run out there and shot it. Well, actually, I was running the Kessler because we had to get eight guns up and run. So my best friend, <laughs> I said, hey, you lay down. He was my uh, partner in my sniper competition. So I said, Lay down zero of the gun, so he zeroed it, and I, I, I guessed at the BC of the bullet because I wasn't familiar with it. I think it's 123 grain, so I guessed at the BC and the muzzle velocity, and we got a first-round hit on LaRue at 1,000. So, and, and it's been that kind of deal for the rest of its life. It, that that yeah. little gun is phenomenal, and, and I give it to people, and it, it, it's inherently accurate with no matter who's shooting it. it it's something that's very forgiving. Uh, shoots a little bit half minute groups. Bullets are touching all over the place, and mm-hmm. it, it's a phenomenal caliber. Uh, but it, it's it's a great hunting round too. When you compare the ballistics to 300 Win Mag, it matches even ballistics. So mm-hmm. as far as wind, your 300 Win Mag is going to be better for elevation. But we don't care about elevation. No. You know, if you tell me, hey Todd, hold seven mils or hold nine mils with this gun, I'm like, all right, either one of them's good with me. I'm going to hit the target because elevation's known entity. The problem that we're seeking to to solve is our wind call. So if if you tell me, hey, hold three mils, and with this caliber, hold two mils, I've already increased my hit probability by thirty percent. So I'm yep. going with with something that has two mils of hold, as opposed to something that has three. So it, it's the two sixty offers that to us, and I think you're going to see a huge influx of two sixties and six five creeds in the hunting world. But it's already there. Everybody loves their mm. six five creeds. They're great, great calibers. But as far as uh, military applications, I think the 260, and it's just a 65308, so uh, brass is easy to find, yeah. and it's easy to load. You know, you don't get the little, you know, bubble, and it's it, it's it's an, it's a really nice, easy caliber to work with. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan. There's no recoil. Uh, the gun is inherently accurate. 
super high BCs, you know, for a little 130 grain bullet running a 0.56. So mm-hmm. it, it's something that I think uh, we're going to see a lot more of in the future. You mm-hmm. know, the other governments are already looking at moving that direction. And the only reason why is that we, we can take and replace the 308 and the 556, give them the 260. Uh, we don't have to do anything but change the barrel. That's yeah, it. So if you've got a 308, change the barrel, you got a 260. You don't have to worry about magazines, serial numbers, all that kind of stuff. And hit probabilities, everything, and we're increasing hit probability through, you know, guys that step out and go, you know, I think the wind's blowing 8 to 10. Uh, now we can step out and go, I think the wind's blowing 8 to 12 and still get a hit. You yeah. know, so it's it's that forgiving. It's a neat caliber. Mm, all, all we need in Australia is more access to the uh, ammunition, it's, uh, particularly the Creedmoor. It's becoming more and more available, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah, you know, and, and that's something I've noticed talking with a lot of my friends over here is uh, I think – well, who knows? We all got our own government problems. Uh, I, but, you know, good ammunition is something that's kind of hard to find here. Yeah. Maybe maybe somebody can start up a reloading business. I don't know what kind of legalities they have about that over here. But, yeah. Uh, sure but someone can do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure somebody can. I, I can see it being a very profitable, you know, thing for, down here to, to to produce quality ammunition that's affordable. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of shooters down here in Australia that would love it and really go after it and have much more accessibility to it. I think you're right. I think you're right. Now, you mentioned uh, that you were truing at 2,000 metres. Well, um, it just humbles me because I'm, I'm looking at trying to set a goal this year to be shooting consistently at 2,000 metres. Have you got some advice for stuff that I could be preparing? For? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when when you're looking at extreme long-range shooting uh, – the number one component's ammo, right? And, and the reason why is when you get into standard deviations and extreme spreads, you know, you look at 300 meters, you can shoot really good groups at 300 meters and you're happy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that gun can't shoot the same groups at 2,000. When you when you take a long-range gun, a 338 or a 300 Norma, and you're really pushing it out to distance, uh, what you're really looking at is you're testing ammo at, at, at distance because if you if you take a... 338 or 300 norma and you say hey i'm running 3,000 feet per second at 300 meters add 50 feet per second that's that's not a uncommon extreme spread to see in in a lot of loads uh hopefully not in a custom load but you know they, they will <laughs> show happen. up yeah it can happen uh but but we do see it a lot in the military you know 45 to 50 is not uncommon hmm. so when, when you look at 50 feet per se- per second swing uh, look at what it does to your drop at 300 meters. It's going to be nominal. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you might not even notice it. It's probably well within your cone of fire anyway. Yeah. Uh, but when you do that at 2,000, now it's meals. You know, yeah. it, it's not a centimeter. It is meals of difference. So it, it creates huge problems. So so that's one thing. Uh, you need to make sure your hand loads are as good as you can make them. Uh, we need to be able to monitor the temperature sensitivity of the powders uh that's another thing when you're looking at extreme long range uh every little variable re- really helps uh or can hurt but another thing is a lot of scopes won't focus uh on a target at that distance to the point that you can remove all parallax so it, it it's hitting infinity by that point anyway on your on yeah, your parallax yeah, truly and so if you place your he- uh head and move it up and down on your cheek weld you may see your reticle actually moving on the target. Well, that's parallax that's induced that you can't get rid of. Now, what I started doing, I was testing for the military stuff way back, 
shooting at 2,000 meters and shooting groups, and we were trying to define some stuff, looking around the first PSR test way back in 2004, I believe. Uh, what I found was, and, and I, di- I didn't know how to do it to, uh, until this, this moment, but I was actually, I had a 338, didn't have a brake on it, and it kicked like a mule. And so I was actually trying to pull my head back from my scope, and I was getting equal scope shadow so I could get kind of create a ghost ring so I could have some sense of accuracy still involved uh, in doing this test. But I was getting close to getting kissed by the scope, so I thought, you know what, I, I think this will work. Well, I was not shooting that good. I was, you know, 27-inch groups at 2,000 meters, you know, average. And, you know, you get some good ones and some bad ones and some worse ones. And so we was rocking along, not doing very good. And all of a sudden, pulling my head back, getting equal scope shot, I run down and checked. Well, I had three groups that averaged 17 inches. And I was like, all right, something just happened. I got a different lot of ammo, something. Well, what I finally figured out was uh, by pulling my head back and getting equal scope shot, I minimize effects of parallax. And parallax is one of our biggest problems uh, in the military and with all the, the shooters that I know. A lot of people go, you know, a good cheek wheel is imperative. Well, good cheek wheel is nothing to me. Uh, I could care less if I have a good cheek weld because what I do is I center my eye on the scope every time by getting scopes, a perfect scope shadow. And when I say scope shot, I'm not like looking through a little tube. I just get a little fuzz all the way around the outside and make sure it's equal. Well, I have a buddy that's a, a doctorate of optics, and he works for the government. And I talked to him about it, and I said, hey, am I teaching this wrong? Because I teach all my guys to shoot with a little bit of scope shot. And he said, how else are you going to know that your eye is centered in the scope? So forever it was taught incorrectly in the military that basically, you know, you you move your head up in the scope till you get rid of all scope shadow, and then you set your cheek well to where it keeps scope shadow from appearing, and then you're good. And that's basically we can be consistently in a bad spot and get consistent good results, Mm -hmm. but if you ever do positional shooting or anything, move your head, then you're not going to hit where you think. Basically what it is with parallax – your perception of where you think the reticle is and where it really is, is in two different spots. Mm. And that's why, you know, uh, people, they'll, they'll say, yeah, if, if, if I shoot my buddy's gun, I'm a half inch high and you know, a gun that's zeroed isn't zeroed for everybody in the room. How does the gun know? So if it's zeroed, it's zeroed. All right. The reason that it's not zeroed for everybody in the room is the parallax wasn't fixed in the first place. Mm. If the parallax is not fixed, then everybody has a different measurement from their cheek to the center of their eye. So the perception of where the reticle is going to be is totally different. So I had a kid one time uh, in the military shooting two-and-a-half-inch groups. His first day of sniper school. So he was shooting two-and-a-half-inch groups at 100 meters. And I was sitting there watching. I wasn't even looking through the spot and scope. I'm sitting there watching, just watching his fundamentals. He's doing everything right. And, you know, shooting, you know, what I considered probably really good and looked through the spot and said, all right, which are you shooting at? And he told me, and I looked at it and thought, oh, my gosh, it's horrible. <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, you know, in the schoolhouse, we break everything down, and, yep. you know, then we build, rebuild the gun, show them how to torque it, show them how to check things. And so I said, hey, do you retorque that back to spec? And he said, yeah. I said, all right, go get the tools. Let's do it again. I called another instructor. I said, hey, I, d- I got a dead gun. Uh, you know, have one of the instructors bring me up another gun. Hmm. And he said, all right. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to jump down on this gun real quick and just give it a couple of shots and see what the deal is. Yep. Jumped down on it. I could hardly see any reticle. All right. It was that blurry. <laughs> well, after I had turned the Leopold's uh, scope about 15 turns rev- in revolutions around, 
finally a reticle appeared. And then <laughs> I set the side parallax uh, to remove all parallax out, uh, or what I call side focus, set the parallax on it. And once I did that, the kid come running back up. And I said, hey, do me a favor. Give me a couple of shots. And he jumped down. And I was waiting for him to say something. He didn't say anything. I said, uh, does that look better to you? And he said, nope, looks same. His eye would change shape so fast. And a lot of, that's the biggest problem I have with the military. They, their eye changes shape so fast that what they perceive is a crisp reticle is not yeah. a crisp reticle. Yeah. So their eyes changing shape, focusing on something that's close. And they have to focus something far away, that being the target. And then they come back and focus on the reticle. And their eyes going back and forth all day. And then they get shooters, what yeah. they call shooter's eye. And if you know, you've got a headache, their eye feels like it's swollen out the side of their head. Yeah. And they go, yeah, i got to get off the gun. You know, my eye's hurting. Well, I've never in my life had my eye hurt from shooting through a scope, you know. So it, 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 it's something that uh, it's a problem for young shooters because they have good eyes. And so when mm. they, the way that we used to teach it way back in the day was you'd look outside the scope, focus on something far away, look in the scope, uh, look for a crisp reticle. If it's not crisp, you know, turn your ocular ring until it made it crisp. Well, the problem is by the time they looked at it, saw it was blurry, their eye already made it clear. And they go, oh, no, it looks good. And then they look back out and focus on something far away. And what we're doing is elongating the eye, changing focus. And then they look back in, and it's blurry for about a half second, and then it's back clear again. And so by the time they get their hand up to the ocular to turn it, it's already crisp again. They go, nope, it's good. So the only way to really fix that is, one, is when you think it's crisp. And I know people put white pieces of paper in front of their glass and all that kind of stuff, but their eye will still focus on it. So if you look at a target at 100 meters and you think both the target, and I mean super crisp target where you see bullet holes, uh, and then you think the reticle's crisp, if you move your head up and down and the reticle departs from where it was being aimed, uh, it has slight movement, you have parallax. Mm. Start start turning that ocular focus until it gets rid of that movement, then you're golden. Mm. Uh, but you have to maintain perfect clarity because that's why we – uh, remove parallax each shot is by taking the target focus or the parallax knob and actually turn it and getting rid of it. Well, we get rid of parallax. We adjust parallax every shot by doing that because we focus on the target, which is just the parallax for us. But that that's a huge problem that we run into all the time. So for long range shooting, I'm going to tell you a good consistent cheek weld mm-hmm. is big. Even more important than that is making sure I, your eyes centered in the scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son, missed a deer he's killed more uh deer over a thousand meters than any person i've ever known uh he me and him brian lynch was out shooting one day and and this pig came out at 1668 meters and he got a first round hit on it uh it's he he does exceptionally good this past year we shooting at an animal over 2000 meters and he ended up missing and i honestly believe it was getting late in the day and he had a, he didn't pull his head back because he's trying to get max light into the scope. Yep. And so he didn't check his uh, his eye box to make sure he's equally centered. And he went about a tenth of a mil over top of the animal's back. So it was uh, everything was perfect except you know just a slight bit of mil- and tenth mil is a hit or miss at that range. Yeah. It so it, it's it's off. It, but you know to answer your question. Good quality ammo. Mm-hmm. You can't shoot long range without good quality ammo. And, you know, that can get into a whole other discussion about what is long range. But if you want to go out further, no matter what further is, 
further requires better ammo. Yeah. All right, and then optics. Obviously, uh, it, you need to be able to be able to remove that parallax. Okay. So quality optics. You know, I used to be the guy that would uh, work all summer long to save up enough money to buy a hunting rifle, and then I'd take my change and run out and buy a cheap scope and put on it. <laughs> and you know, then I might be pissed that I don't have the quality you know gun that I thought I'd bought. Yep. But in reality now, I I'd rather I'd rather buy a $4,000 scope and put it on a $200 rifle yep. than buy a, you know, $200 scope and put it on a $4,000 gun cuz you'll never see the benefit hmm. or the capability of the weapon system ever with a $200 scope on it. However, you'll probably never uh shoot the full capability of the weapon system. You know, so it, it, it's easier to get every, and the nice deal is you're going to, you're going to enjoy your day more on the range mm. with that $4,000 scope. And you don't have to spend 4000 You know, there's a lot of $2,000 scopes out there that are super high quality. I know Night Force uh, makes, I, we've got some of the attackers here uh, that we're playing with and they're phenomenal, you know, mm. so in, well, in the States, I, I think the price is somewhere around two grand, 2500 on some of the four to 16s and maybe 28, 29 or something like that on the uh, uh, 525 attackers and a little bit higher on the beast. But right now, if you know, I have a lot of surgeon rifles, love them. They're fantastic rifles and, and a lot of LaRue rifles that we use every day in class. Yeah. Uh, the, my number one day, I'm going to buy a good gun, but I will not skimp on a scope, period. No. Yeah, because one, you, it makes it makes your day on the range so much more enjoyable mm. when you can see what you're shooting at, and it's not half <laughs> halfway blurry. Yeah. So it's a it, it it's it's worth it in so many ways. Don't skimp on mm. your scope, and and of course we've talked about this with your long range shooting, but when you're shooting two thousand meters, quality of scope, quality of ammo. Uh, making sure that your fundamentals are the same way every time. So a lot of this is how much loading you put on your bipods. I used to teach real heavy loads. I don't teach that anymore. I actually teach being consistent. I load my bipods with my shoulder till my bipods start to move, and I hold that, and I shoot. And by doing that, I can shoot off a roof, off a car, off mud, off concrete. I can get the same consistency every time, and consistency is what we're looking for. Absolutely, yeah. Consistency is everything with this sort of thing. Mm, Agreed. Now, I've been watching your long-range Made Easy yep. uh, DVDs recently, and, and I love the way you put the uh, long-ranges. It can, can be quite easy to get into, specifically. It's not it's not completely foreign. And I, I know we'd have a number of people listening who are sort of thinking about getting into long-range, but perhaps are intimidated. Yeah, you, you, you know, un- unfortunately, uh, that happens a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, will say you shouldn't shoot anything past 300 uh because you're going to wound it and and that that comes from again comes from ignorance uh i I tell people your limit is where you know you're not comfortable yeah so if you don't think you should shoot past 300 then you shouldn't be shooting past 300 on animals Hmm. uh if if you like if you're someone like my son that's been able to lay down and hit still repeatedly at 1500 meters then there's nothing wrong with you shooting a deer at 500 meters so you know, for people getting into the sport, uh, that was my goal in making that long range made easy was, you know, there's been a mystique around the long range shooting community for forever. Uh, people felt like, well, to be, you know, to be a really good at long range, you had to come out of the military or you had to be in law enforcement. You had to be a sniper in law enforcement. And it was like, uh, you need to be a sniper in the Marine Corps to, to be a good long range shooter, you know, to really know everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the reality is that's absolutely wrong. You know, it's, 
long range is a good family sport. Yep. It, it's something everybody can do. Uh, it doesn't take tons of money. Right. You you can go out and you can buy a. I mean, some of the Tika hunting rifles are mm. awesome. Excellent. Even the Tika T3 Tactical. Yep. Now they have the Tika Hunter. Uh, phenomenal guns for the money, uh, and super accurate. So you can get into a system that, it, like I say, it doesn't have to cost you you know a month's pay to get into it. Uh, then you can buy a good quality scope, and there's several on the market. I'm a huge fan of Night Force. They're made you know here in Australia. The company's based here. Uh, they're, they're great people make, in my opinion, the best scope on the market. Uh, I've shot nearly everything that's made in my school. People send it to me. People bring them in. Uh, as of right now, there's not many that can compete with Night Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you, you can put good quality glass on it. Uh, nowadays, with the ballistic engines, you don't have to, you know, we used to lay down and shoot dope, so... Dope is that on previous engagements, and we'd lay down and we'd shoot at 100, then 200, then 300, and shoot as far out as we want to take that weapon system. And it'd take several days and lots of money and lots of ammo. And, you know, so it, it, it was it was ever ongoing process because as density altitude changed, then you'd have to change your dope cards. And we really didn't know what we was doing. And we actually, even in the military, uh, the manuals, there was a lot of rules that were actually wrong. And we started exposing those and going through and testing stuff. Uh, but nowadays it's so easy because I can take somebody. It's it's, it's like my brother-in-law. Uh, he's kind of a well, can, well, y'all, y'all's term of liberal is totally opposite than our term. So I'll call him a hippie. Uh, he, <laughs> Understand? That yeah, he, he's yeah. an engineer down in Austin, Texas. He's a super great guy. Uh, but you know, he's he's very what we consider liberal. Uh, which is opposite of what you consider liberal, but it's it, it, we both know what we're talking what we're sure. talking about. So I took him out, he, and as a joke, on Christmas, two Christmases ago, I said, "Hey, let's go shoot some guns." And I, I was just picking a fight. So <laughs> at Christmas, and so he, he was like, "All right, sure, let's go." And I was like, "Really?" And I thought he was bluffing, and he, he said, "Yeah, let's go." I said, "Well." Let's take the girls, his two little girls. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're in their, you know, around 10 years old and 10, 13. And, and he, he was like, sure. Well, I was picking another fight. So <laughs> that one didn't work either. So we get them out on the range and we have them all shoot pistols, suppressed 22s, that kind of stuff. Started them out slow and started mm-hmm. going through that. And then had them go into uh, carbines, you know, and shoot five, five, six, and got everybody shooting those suppressed. And then we got up on the hill, and I had the the oldest girl lay down and shoot her first scoped rifle shot of her life. She had a seven hundred fifty eight meter target, yep, and first round. So <laughs> you know, ballistics aren't that hard. Get a good laser range finder. Get you know, the, and that's what we did with truing. You know, when I developed truing back in the early two thousands. The ballistic engines weren't that great. I mean, they, they were good if you had a lot of knowns, hmm. but there was no way for you to get those knowns and to be sure about them. So what I did was, you know, I took the system of taking muzzle velocity and BC and density altitude, what makes up our drop, and apply it uh, based off the impact. Yep. And so I could actually find the actual real muzzle velocity. A lot of people use chronographs, and chronographs are a good starting place. But you got to understand, you're, if you shoot through a chronograph and it tells you you're running 2,900 feet per second and you use a G1 scale, if you use a G7 scale, it's going to give you a different muzzle velocity. Hmm. So if you use a chronograph, which one do you use? <laughs> so it, it creates other problems. So uh, And BCs sometimes aren't perfect. They aren't correct <laughs> yeah. uh, in what's given to you. So if you use a 
a muzz velocity and a bad BC, I'm guessing you're not hitting the target. Mm-hmm. So, it, but if you take where the bullet hits, and that's what truing is. So, it, if I if it tells me I need to true at 800 meters, and I shoot at a target, and, it, and my ballistic engine told me eight mils, but I hit with 8.5, well, I just now, you know, with with the Kestrel AB, I just plug in, hey, Calc MV, 800 meters, I hit at 8.5, done. So I just tell the computer, hey, this is the correction. This is where I hit. You figure it out. Yep. And so it goes back in, recomputes, and gives me the correct minus velocity. And now everything on my range card is a perfect hit. Yep. So guys don't have to go out and then like, man, it, it costs a lot. I don't have the money to go out there and shoot, you know, 300 rounds to get all my dope. And uh, I don't have the time for that. You know, yep. you know, I, I work all week, blah, blah, blah. You can go out and zero gun in five rounds. You don't have to lay there and shoot groups after groups after group to zero gun. So you can zero in five to ten rounds, and then you can true and have all your dope with another five rounds. And that's yeah. a lot. I mean, you can do it in two or three. Hmm. So uh, I'm buy a brand-new gun, put a scope on it, grab a box ammo, zero true, and then do you know extended subsonic truing all within that box of ammo. So I've got my dope up 2,000 meters, usually within about 10 to 12 rounds. So i got eight more rounds to, to, to go hunting with. Yeah. Uh, but it, it doesn't take a lot anymore. You don't have to have the knowledge of somebody that's been in the military for 20 years and been a sniper instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't have to have, you know, the knowledge of a competitive shooter or a ballistician uh, and, and been a competitive shooter and won nationals and that kind of stuff. All you have to do is, for one, know the right products to buy so you're not snowed. Mm-hmm. All right? So you go out and buy A.B. Kestrel. And, and the reason why I say that one is because we've worked real hard at putting the easy buttons in it to where you don't have to understand all the rules of ballistics to know what to plug in. Yep. And so that was key. That's what I wanted to do with the, with the applied ballistic Kestrel. And so talking with Brian and our, our both of our focus has been make this easy. Make this to where anybody can... Grab a gun, zero it, shoot at distance, plug in only what what they saw their bullet hit. So if yep. they held eight mils and it hit a mil up, plug in nine mils and you're done. Hmm. And now I've got perfect holes. So it really doesn't, you know, you could get something as cheap as long range made easy videos uh, and learn all you need to learn from there. You don't have to go to a shooting school. You know, uh, gr- would, would be great. Love to have you come over, but... To be honest, you can learn everything you need to learn from that. Yep. And then you can go out and shoot and have fun, gain more knowledge about wind calling. Uh, a lot of the stuff that you're going to pick up and read nowadays is is old information, and hmm. we, it's been kind of proven wrong. But it's the best that we had. I'm 52 years right. old. So it came from my generation. We mm-hmm. we, we were just ignorant. We, we didn't know what we were talking about back in the day because we didn't have science. I mean, nowadays we use ballistic computers where – uh, back in the day, we were guessing at the variables that caused things that we weren't mm-hmm. for sure about. But but nowadays we use science, so it's, it's science and math. And the ballistic engines are are fairly cheap. You take something as easy as it, my whiz wheels. You know they're fifty dollars a pop, and they run the same ballistic engine as the applied ballistic. You know that that Brian produces. I use his engine to build those. You know, with him knowing about it, I had to pay him. But it, it, it's one of those deals that it's it's the same engine. So you, even though it's fifty dollars as opposed to eight hundred dollars, it's not uh, you're not getting something that's less. And it takes away the uh, the problems of you plugging in bad information because all you get to do is spin the wheel. That's it to get your information. You can't plug in bad data. I was going to ask you about the whiz wheels, but I also wanted to to ask you because some of our, our listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with muzzle velocity in BC. 
but some may not be familiar with density altitude. Yeah. And, and then the second part of that question is how that's uh, factored into the whiz wheel. Okay, so density altitude. So basically, uh, when you start talking about density altitude, well, we'll we'll start run back. Muzzle velocity is time of flight. All right. So you have a certain amount of muzzle velocity in a ba- in a vacuum. Uh, if it's going 3,000 feet per second in a vacuum, it's going to cover 3,000 feet in one second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not going to do that because of the BC, the bullet. BC is drag. Yep. All right. So do the shape of the bullet. You're going to have X amount of drag based off the shape of the bullet. And so that's one drag component. Now you have another drag component being uh, density altitude, how density area. So when you look at uh, sea level, sea level is your standard ICAO day is 15 degrees uh, Celsius. And 29.92 station pressure, we'll just round it to 30 because it's easy and it's only 80 feet difference. Yep. Uh, but when you take that, if I go up 8 degrees hotter, I lose 1,000 foot of density, or I actually gain 1,000 foot of density altitude. So even though I'm at sea level and now I'm 23 degrees instead of 15, I'm at 1,000 foot of density altitude. So if I go up uh, 32 degrees, mm-hmm. now I'm 4,000 foot in density altitude. Well, at 4,000 foot, I have less time of flight. Because air is less dense, yes. so basically it all revolves around time of flight again. So that that's why we have less wind drift, is because we have less time of flight. That's why you know when you look at BCs, people go, yeah, the, you know that bullet fights wind better. No, it doesn't. It just has a better BC, therefore it gets there faster. Mm-hmm. You know the shape of the bullet doesn't fight wind better. It gives it a better BC, makes it more efficient. So the bullet gets to the target quicker, so it has less wind deflection. Yep. That's all it is. And wind never touches a bullet. So it, it's the, the shock wave doesn't allow it. So it's, it, the wind's not going to push on the side of the bullet. I was ignorant. I, did, I thought the wind touched my bullet for years. <laughs> so it, it, it's one of those deals. Now we, we use science and we have better understanding of it. But uh, BCs allow us to have less drag. Uh, density altitude, as long as we know what it is. It's easy, and we can apply it into the Kestrel. And then in the whiz wheel, uh, there's a little wheel at the bottom that you can calculate. So your altitude and your uh, temperature give you a density altitude, then you just line the range that you want to shoot with the density altitude above it, and it gives you a hold. So it's yeah, that simple. Right. Yeah, yeah, simple. Yeah, and they're, and they're done per, per gun, aren't they? Yeah, right? yeah, they're custom. So you can go out. and uh, it, It's as simple as uh, shoot your gun through a chronograph and tell us what bullet you're using, and we give you a perfectly custom match whiz wheel to match that weapon system yeah brilliant. so that's and that's what we was going for was something super easy uh for for the average joe and he didn't have to spend a lot of money so you instead of having to spend eight hundred dollars which down here in australia unfortunately is like twelve hundred dollars <laughs> uh, and the rest yeah 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 and, and then the or a fifty dollar whiz wheel and you get three wheels for that yeah, so right. and you can get them for different guns or you can get them for different uh changes of bullets or anything mm-hmm. so but but it's a custom Whiz wheel for your weapon system, and it changes. It's not a density altitude correction card. It's a it's a circular nomograph. It is a full blown computer. So it's yeah, right. it, it's a circular slide rule. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. They've been around since the 14th century, but it is a full blown computer. It's not just a density altitude correction card. Yeah. Okay. And and I guess one of the benefits of them is they're never going to run flat on batteries, are they? Now, I hope you're paying Brian well because uh, you may have upped his uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the that that's another nice thing. You, no batteries needed. Uh, they actually, I had a Navy SEAL one time uh, drop one and came back on the range the next day and found it. Well, it rained that night. It was laying in a pool of water and he just took his canteen out and washed it off. And yep. he's still using it today. So uh, apparently they do real good, real good in water. 
but you know, I, obviously they're designed to. But it, it's something that it, it's a phenomenal tool for the money. Uh, and ballistic engines, you know, they're, they're they're the best thing for long range shooting in the world because what we used to do back in the day shooting dope is ridiculous nowadays. Yeah. You know, so now we we in sniper school, you know, we can take guys out and get them zero and get them trued in the first day. We, I mean, most most time way back, I can remember where. 800 meters on an E-type, 40 inch by 20 inch, was considered about 50-50. Hit some, miss some. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, everybody trues on headshots on the first day. <laughs> so it, it, now it's just normal to do headshots. Yeah. yeah, if you're hitting the body, you're missing, dude. Come up. So <laughs> it, it, it's a little bit of a different world nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, now, Todd, i got one, one more question for okay. you, but I think it's going to be a, it's a fairly lengthy one. You've alluded to it already, but wind is our biggest nemesis in this game. And I guess any any information you can impart to our listeners or any ideas or tools or anything we can go away with. Yeah, you know, it, wind is everything in the long-range community, so that's our nemesis. Uh, the big deal about wind, you know, uh, there's been a lot of stuff said you know, in the past that, you know, wind at your position means nothing. Uh, wind at your position is the only known in this big guessing game that we have. <laughs> if if I had to remove everything from my bag of tricks about making a wind call and I only had one tool, it'd be an anemometer at my position like a Kestrel that told me what the wind was doing at my position. Yep. So we'll go through it step by step. All right. So the first thing I'm going to do when I'm looking at wind and getting a wind call, we won't go into how to do the math and all sure. that. That's 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 either one not hard if you use a Kestrel when you can plug it in, or you know you go through and do the short wind formula that I teach the military, or better yet, use a uh, trimmer three or trimmer two wind dot. You know where you can just apply it to the wind dots and shoot. You don't Point have to gun. do any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I'm going to do is find the wind value. All right. So I'm going to mm-hmm. take my Kestrel out. I'm on put it up i'm gonna look at it and if it says 16 miles an hour all right 16 miles an hour and then in the way that we find the actual wind direction is actually open up the kestrel to where we, the impel is exposed to the wind and we turn it into the wind until the impeller stops moving that means i've got equal wind flow flowing down both sides now once i've done that i've isolated and i found the actual pure direction of the wind now I look at the target and i figure out the cosine so this is huge. Most people miss wind shots because they half-ass the cosine. So that's what we got to take care of. People go, I don't know, it looks it looks about halfway between full value and no value. That's half value. No, it's not. All right, That's 45 degrees. Cosine for 45 degrees is 0.707. So you're shooting 70 or 75% of that 16 miles an hour. So you got 12 mile an hour worth of wind right now, not Eight. All right. Eight's a miss. Twelve's a hit. Mm-hmm. So that's the big deal. You got to get the cosine right. So you got to take the time to actually figure out the cosine. Then once we figure out the cosine, and there's 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 a lot to this, you know, going up because you know, when I say there's a lot to it, knowing what's dirty air, meaning are you in a catabatic wind sense? So on the side of the hill that you're on, are you getting a pure airflow? If you're not getting a pure airflow, you may have wind coming, you know, over the hill and coming down to your position, which means you're in dirty air and there is just burbling coming down the hill. Or you may be on an orographic wind that is actually coming up a hill. So if you're at the top of a peak and you've got wind coming up a hill and it's a compressed wind flow volume that's compressing over a period of time over an elongated uh, surface area, as that wind compresses and comes up over, it could be twice as high as it is where the bullet is in the first 
30 meters. So it can leave your position in 30 meters and be in a totally different wind. So you have to be able to look at training and define that. Now, for most people, uh, they're not going to be in that kind of a situation. Uh, they may be in more catabatic winds than they are in orographic winds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to understand it. You have to look at it. You know, Take your Kestrel. See what you can determine. If you can read Mirage, that's great. So reading Mirage uh, is when we take our spot and scope and we focus on the target. And if we can see the little wavy, wiggly lines, mm-hmm. uh, that's awesome. It can, if you train yourself, you can define a uh, wind value out of it. Now, it's always full value at that point. So if I have a 16-mile-hour wind coming in from 1 o'clock, I'm going to see a mirage pattern of 8-mile-hour. Mm-hmm. All right, it's always full value. We can't see wind direction. If it's floating up and to the right, that's a 2- or 3-mile-hour wind. You're not seeing wind direction. That's just what a 2- or 3-mile-hour wind does. Yeah. So. You know, you look for wind direction uh, in the in the grass or the weeds or the uh, the trees, and and that's what we look at vegetation for. Uh, but you know, in the sniper manuals where it talks all the time about hey, you know, winds from three to five mile hour, uh, grass does this, from winds from five to seven, you know, small brush does this. Uh, that was meant to be hey pay attention to your environment that was it that didn't mean that all grass moves at three to five hmm. that doesn't mean that all tree limbs move at 12 to 14 all right so it you know where i live the wind blows every day 17 mile hour average day so if if most of the indigenous uh plant life in that area moved like it says it does in the book it had been whipped to death and died in the first year so it, it, what you need to do is calibrate yourself to the indigenous plant life in your in your area where you're hunting and so you can say hey there's a whole bunch of this uh type of brush or grass and take your kestrel out look at it and go okay well 12 mile iron moves like this notate it write it down it's a great great deal for a log book uh, but once you go back, so we'll, we'll kind of step through my process. I'm going to take, I'm going to find my wind direction and my wind speed volume, get the cosine of it. Now I know the full wind value. Then I'm going to look at my terrain feature around me uh, to see if it's uh, in a catabatic wind sense, if I'm in dirty air, if I need to increase that at all. Then I'm going to look at uh, vegetation uh, downrange. I may even focus on the target to see if I can see a mirage pattern. And then I'm going to uh, come back to the left with my spot and scope on my ocular piece to where I'm actually, wherever you're in focus is where you're reading Mirage. So even though you're focused on a target, maybe at 500 meters and you're looking up on a hillside that may be uh, a couple of K away. Uh, the reality is you may be seeing Mirage on that feature 2k away, but that Mirage is happening at 500. Hmm. So wherever you're in focus, that's where you're calling wind. So, you can actually isolate the areas that you're calling wind and define different wind values as you do that. So a mirage pattern is what we call a converging ray. And you can actually invert the con- converging ray by turning your diopter too far in one direction. It'll flip the direction. Yep. But a lot of people don't realize that. They think the wind just changed. So they're playing with They're trying to focus on a day that has a lot of mirage. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to focus on the target. And it, you can't get it in focus. Mm-hmm. And so they go past to the point that now it's flipped the mirage pattern. Now they're going to make a very big error in their wind call. So yeah. it's, it, it's something that, uh, you know, wind calling is a step-by-step process. If you take care of the steps, it's actually pretty easy. The number one deal is know, know your wind speed. Know your cosine. Uh, once you take care of that, get a full wind effect. And then that creates a baseline for you. So if it's 8 miles an hour because it was 16 from 1 o'clock, it's 8 mile an hour. 
Eight's not what I'm going to shoot. Eight's my baseline. If it stays there, I'll shoot eight. If it starts to gust, I'm going to move from eight to ten. If I'm doing wind formula, then I'll do a wind formula for eight, and then I'll know that every four miles an hour does it by half again. Mm-hmm. So wind's linear, so you can you can run it that way a lot. When we do long-range shooting, uh, a lot of times we'll take the Kestrel and plug in my gun number for, for wind. So let's just say I have a four-mile-hour gun that makes it 500 equals 0.5 mils. And so that becomes my gun number. Well, I'll plug in a 3 o'clock wind from 4-mile-hour, turn spin off, and if I'm shooting 1,200 meters with that 308, I'll look at 1,200 meters, and it'll give me 1.6 mils. Now, it's not the same as 500 equals 0.5 anymore, but uh, what it gives me is the density altitude correction for that range at the density altitude that I'm at because at 7,500, it is probably 1.2 mils mm-hmm. as far as 7,500-foot DA. So it, it gives me the capability to instantly see the value of X wind. On, on, so if I say, hey, that's four miles an hour. So if wind changes by two mile an hour, I got to add half that 1.6 back. So I'm adding 0.8 mils. So it, which means every mile an hour is 0.4 mils at that distance. Mm-hmm. So it gives me pure knowledge immediately. And, and it gives me the capability to flex my wind call. And that's what most people don't, don't realize. When you make a wind call, you get a baseline. And that is your baseline. You have to flex based off wind speed or Wind direction immediately. Mm. Uh, a lot of people spend enough time to get a to a wind formula and get a wind call, and they're going to shoot it no matter what happens. You know, a hurricane can be blowing them off the gun. They're still trying to hold two meals on the target. So you have to be able to go. All right, give me two meals. All right, give me two point two, two point three, two point four, two point two. Is the wind's dying down? Two point one, and as soon as he gets ready. He shoots. Yep. So used to in the military is like, hey, you need to shoot closer to my wind call. And uh, I, I was never for that when I'd hear the guy say that because my deal is the shooter is there to give me the best job he, or give me the best shot he can give me, period. Uh, my job is to give him the best wind call. Mm-hmm. Right? So both of us doing our jobs means he may be in a position where he can't do his job because he has to move his rear bag or, or adjust for a moving target. My job is to continue giving him a wind call until that gun goes off, period. Yep. So wind calls, really, they're, they're not that hard. I mean, I live in an area that, I mean, we shoot in 40, 50-mile-hour winds all the time. A wind call isn't hard. Take the time to figure out the proper cosine. There's three cosines you need to know. 2 o'clock is 30 degrees, which 30 degrees is 0.866, so it's 90%. 130 is 70%. All right, so the cosine for 45 degrees is 0.707, so it's 70 or 75%. Uh, And then you look at 1 o'clock, it's 50%. So it's 50, 70, 90. 90, 70, 50. Back 7 o'clock, 50, 70, 90. 90, 70, 50, all the way around. Just three numbers that repeat themselves. So learn, you know, learn 30 degrees, 45 degrees, and, and 60 degrees. That's... Two o'clock, one thirty, one o'clock. You get those, you've got wind. You can knock it out real fast. So, but take the time to do the cosine. If you don't do cosines correctly, uh, pretty much guaranteed, unless you're shooting in a no wind environment, you're going to have problems hitting targets. Well, Todd, that's um, excellent advice, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. And uh, well, it was great to be able to catch you while you're over here in Australia. Yeah, uh, feel free to give me a holler uh, if you got anything uh, that you need or questions when I'm back in the States or maybe when I'm back over and get together and go shooting. 
Oh, that'd be even better. That'd be even better. And uh, I'm intending to be over at Shot. And I know you're pretty busy over there, but I'll make sure I swing past and say yep. good day. Yep. Shot Show is a blur for me usually. <laughs> I'm in meetings. Uh, unfortunately, Shot Show is not something that I enjoy yeah. because we are in so many meetings and it's so busy. But, you know, the nice thing about Shot Show is you, you end up getting to meet a lot of the people. Hmm. And that's that's really the only benefit, you know, and nowadays for me at Shot Show is I get to see a lot of old friends and meet new ones. So, be sure and stop by. Say hi. Of course. Uh, stay in touch with me. There's probably a couple of new places you'll see me. You, you'll see me probably at the LaRue booth, Night Force mm-hmm. booth, Burger booth, uh, companies that I you know, consult with and work with and you know that, that uh, we hold high as far as quality. Uh, there, there's a lot of companies out there. Um, make sure that what you're buying, don't waste your money. You know, that's, that's a big deal for a lot of the uh, listeners is take the time to do the research because a lot of people mm. get wrapped up into uh, – there's a lot of products out there, as you're going to see at SHOT Show, man. Mm. It is a huge facility. It's a huge building. It's enormous. I'd, I'd call it a monster, but it's it's a monster. It's yeah, it's bigger. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's phenomenal. However, that doesn't mean everything there is quality. Yeah. So – when you're going to take your time to spend your money, make sure you're spending it on good, good quality equipment. Uh, don't go cheap with scopes. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can back off. If you need to go cheap, reload, you know, and then you're probably going to get better ammo anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, but get quality bullets. Uh, bullets are huge. Don't go cheap on bullets. It's kind of like cheap, mm. cheap on scopes. That's why I shoot burger bullets. They're phenomenal. Uh, super high BC, super high quality. Uh, capability from bullet to bullet as far as uh, uh, weight, everything's there. I don't have to weigh each bullet like we used to when we was reloading in the past. But, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to see you when you come over. Give me a holler. Maybe you can drop by the house and we can shoot and we can throw you, throw you on a gun at two, 2K or maybe further. <laughs> that would be fantastic. And I'm hoping to get over to your school in Texas and take your class there. That'd yep, that that will be good. Un- unfor- unfortunately, most time uh, all my classes are military. Yep. We're actually – I'm actually looking at opening up a uh, a school here in Australia. So, Wonderful. yeah, we, we may actually start doing some instruction here in Australia, start mm-hmm. uh, messing around. I've got some some guys getting out of the military that have been under my instruction for several times. Some, some, some of the guys know about it and have seen it and have been through it once. Uh, some of them have been through it three or four times. So they're actually coming, you know, full capable. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're actually looking at starting that and I'm, there's, well, we, we spend a lot of time over here with the military, but you know, and law enforcement, but now there's more interest from the law enforcement and I get requests, uh, nearly every week from people here in Australia to, from, you know, to do classes, either them come over there or me come down here and, and due to security concerns, we don't usually let a lot of people know where we are at in the world. However, this is something that uh, we'll probably start doing more classes down here because of the interest, uh, mm. if we can find time. Uh, <laughs> and and since it is such a long flight, I probably won't send my instructor down here. I'll just do it when I'm doing military training down here and stay an extra week and do it. But yeah. maybe maybe we uh, end up doing doing one where y'all can come up and be, and be a part of it. We'll bring a whole crew up. It'd be That'd great. be awesome. That'd Excellent. be awesome. All right, Todd. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, All right, thanks for having me. Good luck in the endeavors in the rest of Australia and wherever you're off to next. Yep. I appreciate it, man. It's been fun. Terrific. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. 
continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter.